Short Cast Club. July 29th, 2023. I'm Avi Kaufman, founder of Shortcast Club. Welcome to our fourth episode of Best of Shortcast Club. Each week, we highlight some of our favorite podcast episodes from Shortcast Club. Find these and more on our Shortcast Club app, available on iOS and Android app stores. Today, we have 10 great episodes selected for you. First up, an episode of Trivium U, Timeless Training for Professional Communicators by Dr. Ben Crosby. In this episode, Dr. Crosby talks about soft skills and what is the most important soft skill according to a study that was conducted by LinkedIn. From my experience, in most jobs, it's the soft skills that matter the most. A recent LinkedIn study found that the top soft skill was communication. Soft skills are those skills that help you connect with other people. So they're the skills that help you engender trust and liking and respect. In other words, they're the skills that help other people want to work with you and want to follow you. They're leadership skills. So think of soft skills in terms of those human skills. And at the top of that list, and this is what LinkedIn found, were communication skills. So other soft skills are things like teamwork and collaboration and even stuff like punctuality. But at the top of the list, communication skills. This survey just confirms what we've known for a long time. In fact, decades ago, there was a study done by Harvard, Stanford, and the Carnegie Foundation, and it found that 85% of your ability to advance in your career is based just on your soft skills. Only 15% is based on your hard or your technical skills. So if you're not finding this soft skills training out there, the communication training, you're missing out on a huge opportunity to set yourself apart. Second, an episode from Samantha Chung's podcast, Simplifying Sam, the shortcast. A friend asked her, what does it feel like to have a lot of money or financial abundance? And she reflects on how she uses money and makes purchasing decisions. I appreciate how perceptive she is about how her thinking is different with money. So I just had a really close friend call me and she wanted to ask me questions about how, what it feels like to be truly financially abundant. Like what is the energy of having a lot of money and stewarding a lot of money feel like for me? And I told her that I don't think my answer is going to match a lot of the other people that she's talked to because for me, financial abundance or freedom with money doesn't actually feel like happiness per se. For me, it's this subtle current of emotion that feels like I got it. It's that energy of when a bill comes to the table and you're like, let me get it. It's not ecstatic happiness because you can have a lot of money and not feel happy. You can also feel really happy and not have a lot of money. And so for me, the feeling of having a lot of money and stewarding a lot of money, meaning that I'm comfortable with letting money go in and out of my bank account, is this feeling of no matter what, I can pay for it. So I would say you could call that trust or security, not happiness. And so how does a truly financially wealthy person view money? For me, I view money completely neutral, meaning that $6 and $6,000, really no difference. I don't view $6 as less expensive than $6,000. The way I make financial decisions is, do I find the thing that is $6 and or $6,000 valuable? For me, the price tag is really neither here nor there. The economy sort of dictates what things are priced at. I determine whether I value the thing that I'm trying to purchase. When I go to the store and I buy toothpaste and toilet paper, it costs maybe $10. So whether it costs $10 or $20 is really neither here nor there. I need it and value it regardless. 
And that is how I make decisions about literally everything. It's as if I am buying toothpaste and toilet paper. I either need it or I don't. And so for me, investing in myself, whether that be coaching, therapy, different modalities that are going to help me heal, I see those as highly valuable to my success. Whether it costs $5,000 or $30,000 doesn't really phase me. And that's not necessarily because I have a lot of money. It's because I understand how money works. Money is the representation of value and the energy within us that we use to create goods and services. So think of it this way. The more energy I have, the more energy I have to create. The more I create, the more it gets exchanged. And so anything that's going to give me energy is worth it. So if you've been experiencing spending guilt for something like a massage or coffees out, you don't really know how money works because the one who has the most money is the one who possesses and utilizes the most energy. Next, an episode of Tom Voiceover Quick Voiceover Tips by Tom Jordan. In this episode, Tom reads the same passage three times in three different voices to make a point about the power of acting and how the ability to tell the story is more important than a so-called great voice. Tom Jordan, audiobook narrator, voice actor. You know, I've beaten this horse a thousand times, but I really want to get into why it doesn't matter what type of voice you have when it comes to voice acting and audiobook narration. People always say, well, you've got to have a great voice. And people always come to me and say, I've been told I have a great voice. And this is still happening after decades and decades of us hearing about this. It's still happening that people come and say they've got a great voice or they've, they've been told they have a great voice. Therefore, they need to get into voice acting. And, you know, it doesn't hurt. I think in, at, at first blush, um, a great voice might get you in the door, but it really does matter more about how you act than anything else. I'm going to read something for you right now, and um, you can you can concentrate on the acting and not the voice. And I'm going to read it in three different voices, and you can kind of get an idea what I'm talking about here. The ink from those intricate waves and dragons and chrysanthemums all leaked down her back down the curves of her back, down her legs into a pool on the floor. The ink from those intricate waves and dragons and chrysanthemums all leaked down her back, down the curve of her back, down her legs into a pool on the floor. The ink from those intricate waves and dragons and chrysanthemums, all leaked down her back, down the curve of her back, down her legs into a pool on the floor. I don't know that any one of those was any less engaging than the other. Um, they're all read in different voices. The point is, is that, and I don't know that it was particularly great acting either. The point is, is that they all were engaging in their own right and it had nothing to do with the tone of the voice or the type of voice that was read. So keep that in mind the next time you think, do I have the right voice for this? It's not about the voice. It's about the acting. It's about the performance. It's about the ability to tell the story. I keep on trying to persuade people about that and I'll, and I'll continue to do that as videos go on I don't mind it provides content for these videos if nothing else so have a great day thank you fourth 
an episode by Joe Bovino of Bovino Law Group, a well-known immigration attorney in Florida. I love these episodes by Joe because each one sheds light on a different aspect of our Byzantine labyrinth of an immigration system. In this episode, he is joined by his friend, Colombian-American actor Juan Pablo Raba, who finally has received his green card. Congratulations, Juan. Hey everybody, this is Joe Bovino, and I'm here with my friend and client, Juan Pablo Raba. Uh, Juan is a Colombian-American actor. You may have seen him in all sorts of films and TV shows. Yeah, we've been friends for, what, like 20 years now? Long time. Long time, right? I was young. Yeah, I was young. Look at his beard. So, I have to thank you, because I have just received my green card. After living 10 years in the United States, I can finally say that I have a green card. That's right. And I have to thank this gentleman right here because he helped me navigate this process. And I'm telling you, it is not easy. So take your time and call somebody that knows what they're doing because it can become really complicated. Yes, it can. Well, everything worked out fine. The hard part in Juan Pablo's case was that he travels for work. He's always doing films outside of the country. And with a green card, once you file it, you have to stay put in the United States until you get a travel permit. So we had to find a time where he was going to be in the United States for a while. And that's all. That took a few years, actually. Exactly. I think that got four years since we started the process. But anyway, I just want to say thank you, Joe, for your friendship, for your uh, professional skills, and, you know, for bearing up with me. It's not easy. <laughs> thank you. And this is Joseph Vino, U.S. Immigration and Business Attorney. Follow for more. Next, a quick 37-second question and answer with Tyson Matrux, an injury attorney in Missouri. He was asked, what happens if you have to file a claim against a family member after a car crash? Does that cause drama? Hey, I have another question for you. So let's say someone's driving with a family member and they're in an accident and you cannot establish fault with another driver. Should we go after a family member for a claim? Does that usually create drama? Is it trouble? What are your thoughts? Does it sometimes create drama? Yes. Most of the time it doesn't. Most of the time the family member says, hey, I care about you. Here's my insurance information. They direct the insurance company to pay the claim so that it takes care of their loved one's pain and suffering, their medical bills. They want to make sure that they're taken care of. So does it sometimes create some drama? Yeah, but that's usually in some situations where there's some pre-existing drama that's already there. Up next, Marissa Moyer, a career coach, helps interpret the real meaning when you are told at work, hey, take a break, take care of yourself and how you may be missing the actual message. People at work are always telling you things like, now don't take on too much. I wanna make sure you're not overwhelmed. Remember to take care of yourself. And you think, well, that's nice, but I don't care about taking care of myself. This stuff needs to get done. My friend, you are missing the cue here. This is why what I teach always starts with self-awareness. Because oftentimes being extremely ambitious actually clouds your ability to understand how other people at work truly see you. And let me explain what I mean by that. So I'm not saying that no one ever means it when they say you need to take care of yourself. I am saying that more often than not, if this is being said to you over and over, it's because you are over committing, under delivering, and people are nicely trying to let you know that it's frustrating them. You're not catching that. You're hearing people say, we see how hard you're working and you think that you're gonna get some type of award for continuing to run yourself into the ground. You have to have that self-awareness piece in order to be truly respected at work. And I say that with love. Seventh, an episode of Don't Just Win, Dominate by Bill Harper, a marketing and branding expert this time with a potentially controversial explanation of why he thinks Elon Musk was right to change the Twitter branding to X. I had not thought of it from this perspective, and it, it's very interesting. I'm still wondering, though, what are we supposed to call tweets now? X's doesn't quite seem right. 
about X? Elon Musk had to do it. There was no way in the world he was going to get away from the momentum or the drag of the Twitter brand as long as he stayed in the Twitter brand. He had to do it. Now, a lot of people are going to disagree with that and they're going to say it was nuts and he burned it to the ground in the whole nine yards. And perhaps you're right, but he would never have a chance to build that brand back into anything unless he divorced himself of the name. So as far as like a step, it was the only step that made any sense in the world. Now, the question is, can he do it? Will he bring it back? Will he create something from the ashes of it? I don't know. This is a super interesting thing to watch from a brand standpoint. But I think the people that are saying that he's a complete moron uh, for having changed the name really don't get the situation that he's in. He didn't have any other choice but to change the name if he wanted to wipe the slate clean and have any chance of success. That's my take on it. Next, if you're into baseball or trying to impress someone who is, you need to be following Kate Maniscalco. In this episode of Ask Kate, she gives us an energetic update on some big trades that happened this week in the MLB. You know it's trade season when your blood pressure is literally through the roof? So buckle up, we have a lot to go over. So this is the trade that quite literally I think broke the internet today. Lucas Giolito, probably the number one pitcher on the market, is going to the Angels along with Ronaldo Lopez from the Chicago White Sox. What does this mean? Shohei Otani is not getting traded and the Angels are going to make a playoff push, which is nuts. So here's a big one. We got Carlos Santana is going to the Brewers. Huge news. Did not expect that one to happen. This is not a trade, but the Marlins are showing interest in Tim Anderson, which is a little surprising because he's not having the best year. Honestly thought he was going to stay with the White Sox. Another big one, Syndergaard adds another team to his roster. He is going to the Guardians in exchange for Rosario. Obviously, we have everyone's favorite trade so far. Kiki is going back to LA. And the Red Sox add some reliever depth to their bullpen. I'm just waiting patiently for Bellinger to get traded to the Yankees, but I have a feeling that may mean they lose Glaber Torres. I don't know. We'll find out. Now, as a former history major, I really like this next one by Source Vintage Antiques. They have a passion for antiques and storytelling. In this episode, he talks about an antique 19th century sailor-carved scrimshaw love token busk. Now there's an idea I'll have to keep in mind for my next anniversary present. An antique 19th century sailor-carved scrimshaw love token busk. Although whaling has been practiced around the world for more than 4,000 years, it wasn't until the 15th century that it spread throughout Northern Europe. Whale blubber was an essential part of everyday life as it fueled oil lamps, street lamps and even lighthouses. The whaling industry exploded during the 17th century. Sailors began saving bits of whale ivory and bone, which they would carve into tools and other useful objects. In the early 19th century, sailors, looking for a way to amuse themselves during the long days at sea, began engraving decorations into whales' teeth and into their hand-carved tools. This folk art technique became known as scrimshaw. A popular creation for sailors were love tokens for their sweethearts, in particular carved busks that she would wear into her corset. This long, flat, rigid object would slide into a tall, narrow pocket in the front of a corset between a woman's breasts all the way down to her pubic bone. It would be tied into place to give the bust lift and help keep the corset straight and upright. The sailor would inscribe the bust with coded sentimental images for their beloved, and sometimes words, the idea being that these thoughts of love would stay close to her heart. This particular example has an obvious emotional connection to Hull. 
Finally, let's end with an episode from Professor Pog with science facts on meditation. First, he gives some history and overview of the different types of meditation and then explains how it works from a scientific lens. I found this to be a really helpful explanation and I might try some meditation next. Hi, I'm Professor Pog and this is the Pog World Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about meditation. Meditation has a long and rich history, dating back to ancient traditions in India, China, and other parts of the world. In the United States, meditation became more mainstream in the 1980s, thanks to the work of John Kabat-Zinn, who developed the Secular Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, MBSR, program. When we meditate, we're essentially training our brains to pay attention to the present moment. This involves the prefrontal cortex, anterior cingulate cortex, ACC, and insula, which are all involved in interpreting internal bodily signals and the external environment. The default mode network is a network of brain regions active when the mind wanders between the past, present, and future. Meditation can reduce this by enhancing present moment focus. Interoceptive and Extraoceptive Meditations Interoceptive meditations involve focusing on the body, such as the breath or the sensations of the body. Exteroceptive meditations involve focusing on something outside the body, such as a candle flame or a mantra. We all have a bias towards either interoception or exteroception. We can assess our bias by paying attention to where our attention tends to go when not meditating. If we tend towards interoception, we might want to do more exteroceptive meditations and vice versa. When we meditate with our eyes closed, we shift our perception from exteroception to interception. Mind-wandering is a normal part of meditation. When our minds wander, we can simply acknowledge the thought and then refocus our attention on the present moment. This is an important skill to learn, as it can help us to stay present in our lives off the cushion as well. Meditation and sleep meditation before bed can make falling asleep harder. This is because meditation can increase alertness and awareness. If you're having trouble sleeping, you might want to try yoga nidra or non-sleep deep rest instead. Even brief meditations can provide benefits. Some studies have shown that as little as one, three minutes of meditation can be helpful. The key is to be consistent with your practice, even if it's just for a few minutes each day. If you're interested in learning more about meditation, I encourage you to check out the resources I've listed in the show notes. And if you're not already meditating, I encourage you to give it a try. It's a great way to reduce stress, improve your focus, and boost your overall well-being. That's all for this episode of Professor Pog's Pog World Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this taste of just some of my favorites from this week. There are many, many more great shows available on Shortcast Club. Please download the app from the iOS or Android app store. Search for Shortcast Club. That's two words. Thanks and happy listening.